Hello everyone, and thanks for joining us for our latest edition of Infection Control Matters. I'm Brett Mitchell, and joining me today is Martin Kiernan. Hello Brett, nice to see you again. As always, Martin. Our special guest today is Dr. Kirsty Busing. Uh, Dr. Busing is an infectious diseases physician at the Victorian Infectious Diseases Service at the Royal Melbourne Hospital and Director of Medical Services. She's a, the theme leader for AMR and Healthcare Associated Infection at the Doherty Institute and also has played a role as Deputy Director for the National Centre for Antimicrobial Stewardship at the University of Melbourne. Welcome, Kirsty. Thank you for joining us. Uh, thanks. And hi, Brett, and hi, Martin. So today um, we've asked Kirsty to join us because there was a paper that um, I believe has just been accepted, um, and Kirsty could tell us that in a moment, but it certainly was a preprint available. And the, the title of this paper was called Use of Portable Air Cleaners to Reduce Aerosol Transmission on a Hospital COVID-19 Ward. And um, we really wanted to, to chat to, to Kirsty about this paper. So, to Kirsty, just to begin with, um, is this paper uh, available just on preprint at the moment, or is it has it been accepted somewhere? It's been accepted to um, infection control and hospital epidemiology, and I've got the print the proof sitting on my desktop, um, just about to be. I'll press send today for you. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, we will post the details of the uh, the article on our on our website alongside this podcast. So, uh, Kirsty, what did I guess the first thing I want to ask is what was the the idea behind uh, this piece of work? Yeah, thanks for asking that, Brett. Um, so last year um, during twenty twenty, our hospital saw a large number of cases of patients with COVID nineteen. Um, large relative to others in Australia, not necessarily internationally. Um, but um, uh, we obviously had issues with healthcare worker acquisition of infection. Um, and given um, our concerns around that, uh, we invited some colleagues from the University of Melbourne, um, which is just located across the road from our hospital, to say, look, we think airborne transmission might have been contributing to what was going on with our healthcare worker acquisition. Can you give us any advice about things we can do to try and reduce the risk to staff in future? So, so that was the open question. And um, we gathered together a really disparate group of people who got together sort of at, you know, six till seven on a Monday evening on the Zoom and just at the start just sort of brainstormed, um, talked about what was in the literature from an engineering background, from an aerosol science background, from an infection control background and from a clinical ID background. And and just sharing different perspectives. And that in itself was really interesting because it opened our eyes to things we hadn't thought about before. And through that, we sort of came to an idea that these portable air cleaners might be an interesting thing to investigate. And the team at the university did some in laboratory experiments where they simulated one of our hospital rooms. We literally invited them over to see what hospital rooms looked like. Yeah. And yeah, that was exciting and interesting for them in itself. But um, <laughs> then they went back and locked up these rooms in, in, and um, did some uh, experiments with air cleaners. And then an opportunity presented itself. And that was the week between Christmas and New Year's Eve every year, we have a low activity period where elective surgery closes down and some of our surgical wards close. And I went to the exec and said, 
could I invite my friends in to do some experiments in the ward? Um, that was literally it. Um, can, can I invite these, this team of people in? And to their credit, they said yes, they trusted us. Um, so it was a ward where we, it is not an ID ward, but it was a ward that had to go hot when our patient numbers climbed very high. So we had managed um, COVID patients in that ward and there had been, to my memory, 13 staff acquisitions in that ward. So we knew there was a, we thought there was a problem there. Um, so we brought them in and, and literally they had the run of the place for a week to do all kinds of really groovy things with all kinds of really groovy equipment. You're so lucky to have that opportunity, aren't you, with the, with the ward closing down for the week? And it's the same as the the geographical layout, presumably, of, of other wards. So it's a fantastic opportunity. I mean, that's a great uh, example of multidisciplinary team working. Yeah. Because you, you have a local university and you're able to get everybody on board straight away. Did they take a lot of convincing or were they keen to let's all work together on this one? Because... You know, there, there was this huge disparity between air science and infection prevention people at the beginning, and a lot of well, is it air? Is it not? And you, you seem to have just grasped the, the nettles very early on. Yeah. So one of the first things would be that that a lot of the engineers and aerosol scientists, their usual research had shut down. They weren't allowed to go into their labs <laughs> unless it was COVID work. Um, then they could get an exemption and go in and do some work. So suddenly there were these people who had a bit of time that they could give us. Um, and clearly they were interested because it was impacting the whole community. So they, they wanted to help. I mean, they weren't hanging around outside the hospital with the big sign up saying, yeah, scientists looking for work or anything like that. <laughs> um, but but I, think, I think there was that, that was one of the key reasons that they were available. Um, but the second part of it, and, and I have to say my colleagues had an open mind. You know, we, we, we had just seen something happen in our wards that we didn't understand. And we wanted to do everything we could to protect our staff next time because we thought there was probably going to be a next time. Um, and we didn't know all the answers ourselves. So we were quite willing to go out there and ask questions of people who knew more than us in areas that we didn't know about. I think I think that's a really important uh, lesson uh, for uh, you know most of our audience is infection control uh, audience. There'll be there'll be others that aren't, but I think for infection prevention and control. It's a lesson that um, for some has taken a long time to to heed, and others uh, still haven't really quite got that message yet. That that this idea of multidisciplinary uh, working uh, to solve some of these complex issues that we've been facing, not just in the last twelve months, but in fact the last fifty years, um, actually requires that multidisciplinary approach. I think we've made some movement in infection control, particularly in implementation science and understanding behaviours. And engaged a lot more experts in that field but i think COVID has really helped us uh move on uh to to work with other disciplines in the science field to to, to the benefit just for our benefit of our um i guess international audience as well as in australia um kirsty the ward that you did this on uh, every ward's different across the world um did it, did it have a mixture of bays and single rooms? So, what, and what was sort of the number? I know you only did the study, and we'll come to the study in a moment in one particular area. But what what was the general layout of the ward? Yeah. So, so firstly, I'll say that we have a separate ID ward that has fourteen negative pressure rooms with anti rooms. You know, all purpose built, fabulous stuff. But of course, we had too many patients, and so we this was the ward directly opposite it, across a across a lift bay, and it. It um, has a long central corridor that is roughly sort of 50 metres or so long. And then it had, um, it normally houses um, 
from memory, I think 20 patients, um, but some of them are three bedrooms, uh, some of them are single rooms, and none of them are negative pressure rooms. Um, but interestingly, the air exchanges in that ward were really good, um, I think relative to, to what some other wards are. So, so the We'll mention in a minute, but the rooms we did our experiments in were were single rooms on that ward, and they had air exchanges up at twelve an hour. So that that's you know that's pretty good for for an ordinary ward. This is a normally a vascular and urology ward. It's a surgical ward normally. Was was that a designed twelve air changes an hour, Kirsty, or was it actual? You know, did they did they validate that it was actually achieving the design? Yeah, so our engineers have gone back and, and, and checked it out. Yeah, so, so um, mm. you know, that's unusual for, for, for ordinary wards in Australia, at least. Um, yeah. yeah, and it's also, you know, unusual that um, it delivers what it probably is, what it says it's yeah, supposed yeah. to deliver. Um, I suspect yeah. there's plenty out there that, that don't and never tested. Um, how, how old's the hospital, Kirsty, as a matter of interest? Is it fairly new? Oh, um, the Royal Mountain Hospital, the, the, on that side, I think it was the 1940s, it was built, and then iteratively wards have all been added all over the place. So I don't know for that particular ward, um, okay. but, yeah, decades. Okay. So it's still achieving what it was designed to do, then. That's pretty impressive. So, Kirsty, on to the study itself. What did you do? So what was the what was the idea? So we've talked about the idea. What was the, what, what did you actually do to, to look at... Um, the use of these airport, portable air filters? Yeah, so we, we selected um, some, a single room um, that was sort of in the middle of the ward and it was um, separated by a corridor from the nurse's station. And, and um, uh, we used a, a, a glycerol-based um, aerosol, so it's like theatrical smoke, and we measured the particle sizes and the aerosol scientists were able to tell us that it was producing particles that were roughly the same size as the respiratory aerosols. And we, we basically filled the room with these aerosols. And the first thing we did was just watch where they went um, because we understood from where we've seen staff getting infected that, that people who didn't go into patient rooms were getting infected. So we wanted to understand airflow. Um, and we observed that, that these um, particles were, in fact, leaving the patient, the single patient room, even with the door closed. They were getting out under the bottom of the room and they were travelling quite um, swiftly, I got videos of them travelling quite swiftly down the corridor um, to where an air return happened to be in the in the corridor. Um, so that kind of, you know, said to us, well, maybe that's how our staff who were sitting at the nurses' station got infected because um, uh, we were we were trying to understand how that had happened. But then we um, looked at the impact of putting these air cleaners in the room, and firstly measured how quickly they were clearing the room of particulate matter and then also what the impact was on how quickly particulate matter was being cleared from the air in the corridor and in the nurse's station. And basically what we showed was putting air cleaners in the patient room um, protected people in the room and protected people outside the room um, from, from aerosols that might have been escaping. Yeah, it was, it was really impressive some of the some of the reductions seen in the time. Um, I mean, how noisy are these things, Kirsty? I mean, would would a patient are they noisy? Would a patient be able to sleep? No. So we measured the, the noise, um, and yeah, we we use them in patient rooms now, um, and they're no noisier than having a little portable heater on or something that many of okay. you would be familiar with. They're they're not obtrusive, um, uh, and. Uh, Obviously, that how much noise depends on the particular device that you buy and the size of sure. the device that you buy. But yeah, yeah, yeah. the ones that we were using, noise wasn't a concern. Oh, okay, and even even overnight, so no problem sleeping or anything like that. That's very impressive. And the type of cleaners 
that you um, put in play, um, were they a particular fancy brand or did you just go and buy some from your local shop? What was the sort of background to, to, to the choice of the, the air cleaner? Um, the engineers went to Harvey Norman. <laughs> so Martin Harvey Norman is just a local retailer. Um, okay, yeah, I gathered that. <laughs> um, it, it's, they, they did the work of figuring out the volume of the room and the size of the device we might need for the room, but then we left it up to them to just buy what was what they could get off the shelf. And our view is that there wasn't anything particularly special about this cleaner. It's, it's just a domestic air cleaner. Yeah, but it's well, it's a bit more than domestic, isn't it? Because it's a HEPA filter, so it's it's at the top end of domestic. I mean, any idea how long the filters would last? Yeah, so the, the manufacturers say replace them every six months. Okay, but that's that's in a home environment, isn't it? There's a lot more lint in a hospital, so I wonder if that might need to be reviewed. But it's you know six months is reasonable though, just yeah. as a starting point. Yeah, and I guess then you know there'll be the how to actually change those uh, cleaners and filters would be a, a secondary issue down down the track, of course, just to make sure that people are not put at risk by doing that. Um, so, Kirsty, um, the the reductions in some of the um, the aerosols were, were very impressive, and you sort of you touched on that. So, you know, I think it was a ninety nine percent clearance within five minutes of um, of using the the air filter to to remove that glycerol uh, smoke from the room um did you try it with the door open and uh, and what kind of effect did that did you see with the door open with the use of a, a, a air filter yeah so so that that they kind of stemmed from observations we'd made on the ward um so when things were really bad on the ward and that ward was full we had a lot of elderly delirious people from nursing homes and the nurses made the decision quite reasonably at the time to keep the doors open because they were worried about those patients with falls risks and um, mm -hmm. uh, so we asked the having observed that yes. we asked the question does opening the door make a difference and and um, so the, the scientists said well let's study it <laughs> so they opened the doors up and um, and what happened was of course loads more aerosol came out um, so it sort of suggested to us that maybe at the time that had been a bad decision but of course we did we didn't know. didn't know that. In retrospect, we can understand now. Um, so, so um, our our advice now, if if we're dealing with COVID patients, is to try and keep the doors closed. Yeah. I'm presumably that's aerosol floating around in the air, isn't it? But there, I've seen some papers that suggest things settle, but then as you walk around, you re-aerosolise from the floor. So presumably this is an you've not got people walking around as much in in, in this period. So actually, you you may even have more of an effect with nurses walking around because fast walking does tend to disseminate particulate matter from the floor up into the air again correct yeah and i've never seen a, a nurse who doesn't walk fast yeah and and uh, i won't be able to remember exactly the figure but they told me how many cubic meters of air you take with yourself when you walk in and out of rooms so so you do create a lot of disturbance um yeah well i'd, t I'd take a few more cubic meters than most people i think <laughs> uh, I, I was also seeing the, the gap under the door so actually what effect does opening and closing a door do do you actually get a plume coming shooting out from under the door when you close the door as well yeah yeah um we didn't exactly study that but i'm sure that the, the aerosol scientists could answer it they'd, they'd, I'm sure. they'd be um yeah one of the um one of the, one of the roles i work in we uh have put these in place and um, are continu continuing to expand that um, use. 
do you think this is um have you seen these being used now for in in hospital environment in victoria yourself um kirsty yeah um so the hospital i work in the royal melbourne is using lots of them um yeah. so so we have them like right now if i went over to get a covid test there'd be one sitting beside the screening nurse as an example um but if we have um uh, rooms um, where we put suspected COVID patients, they would always have an air scrubber in them. And we actually put them in the corridor and the nurses station in those wards, you sort of around those rooms. We made the decision not to put them in our negative pressure rooms because we, the, again, the engineers did, an, did some calculations for us and sort of said that the added value in our particular context wasn't great, that, that, that the negative pressure room was already performing so well that there wasn't much to gain for us, but um, different people's contexts might be different in that. In that. Um, uh, but, uh, yeah, we, we're using loads of them. We've deployed them to places with outbreaks. So we had a mental health facility that had a positive case in it and, and so the contacts around that we were protecting with um, air scrubbers and we used them in a residential aged care facility recently too, deployed them out there. So we're becoming very familiar with them. There, yeah. um, In fact, I walked along Grattan Street, that's the street that the hospital's on, and I looked up at the first floor windows and I could see an air scrubber in the windows <laughs> for most of them, which was really yeah. What, what yeah. was the name of that electrical retailer again? I might see if I can buy <laughs> some <laughs> shares in the UK. <laughs> I mean, you tried something called a zip wall as well that I've not come across, Kirsty. So what was? can you explain what that was? Okay, so we, we tried to think about um, how we could protect the nurses' station. If if the whole ward was hot, so all the rooms were full and, and we, we were considering that the corridor was, was hot. Um, and so we thought about what sort of barriers might work and – one of them was a zip wall and one of them was what we called a scrubber barrier. So um, a zip wall is quite literally a plastic wall <laughs> that has sort of magnetic doors in it that the nurses can go in and out. So it's a physical barrier, not too hard to sort of imagine that the air wouldn't cross over. Um, but the one that really interested me was the air scrubber barrier. So all we did was line up three air scrubbers across the front of the desk. We sort of have a high um, desk where the nurses, the ward clerk sits and the nurses go behind. And we did some bubble experiments. So we, we had a bubble machine and when we turned it on, we could watch where the bubbles were floating. And, and when the air scrubbers were on, it was like there was this wall of air and the bubbles couldn't get past it into the nurse's station. And then we just switched the air scrubbers off and the bubbles all drifted over. And, and it was a really, you know, it, it, again, we took videos of it, but it was a really lovely way of actually being able to visualise what was going on with the aerosols. Oh, that sounds fantastic. You know, one of the things with, I guess, journals is that the inability to sometimes show some of these fascinating things have, with the publication you've got or or elsewhere, are people able to um, access any of those uh, visual descriptions? We've, we've got some photographs in supplementary material. We haven't put videos in, um, yeah. but uh, um, yeah, I have been showing the videos at a couple of talks and things that I've given. Um there's even really fascinating videos of where the bubbles go in the lift well um, yeah. and, and how they're ascending within the hospital. So just understanding that led to us moving where the nurses' breakout rooms were, for example. Um, yeah. uh, so I'm just thinking, and I'm going to put you on the spot, but um, we don't need to do this. But I was just thinking when we tweet out this um, podcast, it might be fascinating to include just a, a three-second little video <laughs> with that just to, to show what's going on. Um Kirsty, you know, infection control is um, continuing to evolve and we need to. Um, and there's a lot of other things we're still probably unsure about. Uh, other 
even bacterial infections, um, clearly other respiratory infections we still need to learn a lot more about, but potentially even bacterial infections where, where you know, the role of the air um, has been um, debated by some and, and you know, un, very much unknown in, in other aspects too. Do you think, you know, I guess this is a crystal balling a bit here, but, um, you know, is this something we need to think about and keep a very open mind about as to uh, the role of other pathogens uh, and the way in which they have been traditionally considered to be transmitted and whether we need to be thinking about air much more broadly for other types of infections, not just respiratory pathogens. I think that's a given, but um, but other types of pathogens. Do you think there's a need for us to explore that down the track? Um, the easy answer is yes. Um, <laughs> you've got to keep an open mind, don't you? Um, yeah. Absolutely for respiratory pathogens. You know, and I, I sometimes think if we could see air particles, we'd pay more attention to them, you know, mm. if we could see what was moving about. But, but I guess when you were saying non-respiratory pathogens, I guess the one that popped into my mind was the story of people vomiting <laughs> with gastrointestinal Yeah, that's exactly right. That's what I was thinking. How far that's spreading, you know, and yeah. being, um, there is... There's been much debate, isn't there? Always about norovirus, and yeah. you know, I've worked on plenty of norovirus outbreaks where, if you are, if you're in the room where someone has vomited, um, there's a good chance you're getting it, and yet we'll be told it's mainly droplet and contact. But you know, you, I've seen it so many times where people, nurses, myself, <laughs> have been infected from um, from norovirus from someone from someone vomiting. Uh, so, so sorry, I cut you yeah, off. Well, I, okay, I, do. <laughs> I, I have a slight example on that one. I can remember going to a, a ward many years ago on a Saturday morning where you find out really what infection control is like. And the norovirus patients in the side room with a fan on them because it's a bit hot and the door is open and the fan is blowing directly at the pile <laughs> of toast on the nurse's station for the nursing staff to eat. Yeah. So I'm still a little bit suspicious about air, but I do absolutely get fomite because if norovirus was really that infectious as you know to be in the air all the time, I, I'd be a lot thinner, I think, because <laughs> you don't get long immunity to noro, do you? It may not be in the air all the time, though. It only needs to be a little bit. But Well, I suppose I have to keep an open mind because if you go to mm. Scandinavia when they have a, a norovirus problem, they put masks on, mm. and that's the, that's the routine practice. Yeah. So, you know. Mm. It would be an interesting one. Nobody knows everything. It would be an interesting yeah. one to try with norovirus, wouldn't it, and see whether in a norovirus outbreak, um, it really would. whether these uh, portable air filters uh, have that role of protecting other other mm. um, patients in the ward. Well, I, I guess the other thought, as you've been saying that, you, of course, all this interest about trying to culture virus from air and, and um, um, you know, Hunter Subareo, many of you will know, works at the WHO Flu Centre here at the Doherty, and we're working with her to, to you know, try do some experiments around that. We just haven't had enough COVID patients to do it all. <laughs> <laughs> well, Brett will probably be able to help you out soon. <laughs> I'll be able to help you in hour in Sydney. Yeah. I'll help you with that one. But, um, yeah, maybe there's other viruses we could be looking at trying to, to culture. I don't know. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, just a little thought, Kirsty. I mean, where do the nurses hand over in the, in the, in the halfway through the shift as a matter of interest? Because in the UK, there's often a small ward office that's meant for the ward manager and maybe one other person to do an interview and you end up with six people in there doing the handover because it's all we've got to be confidential so they're all crowded into a very small space and I can't imagine the air changes or anything like the 12 you're going to get in your in your uh, side room or bay so is that is that the practice in Australia and, and it'd be interesting to see if the aerosols actually made it into that sort of space as well through people walking and, and bustling around, you know. So so the handover happens sort of in the nursing station, that area that I was okay. talking about. But 
I would say that that people were very mindful about not gathering. Um, you know, that whole concept of physical distancing on the ward was something people were really mindful of during it. So, so we wouldn't have had class, large numbers of people clustered together. Um, yeah, you know, I think understanding for me, understanding where your air returns are in your ward was important, and and mm. you know, some of them were close to people's offices and things like that, which which you know is is a really interesting thing to think about where you're sitting all day and where the air might be flowing past you. Um, uh, so that's been a learning for me to to look around the ward and to pay attention to where things are. Mm. Kirsty, um, thank you very much for. Um, for your work in this space, it, it is um, it's really interesting and critically important to change our understanding of uh, infection dynamics and transmission dynamics, as well as pre- preventing in- infection in both healthcare workers and patients. So thank you uh, for your work uh, and your colleagues on this. I'd also put a call out to um, to my colleagues. I've put in several grants with multidisciplinary teams, including aerosol scientists, over the last six to 12 months now. Uh, unfortunately, I haven't been uh, successful with some of those grants at a national level uh, to really look at some of these other issues that we've we touched on, started to touch on today as well. So I'd put a call out to colleagues and anyone else listening to to really work collaboratively. And, and if you're a grant reviewer, this is the time where we really need to be supporting these two pieces of work Absolutely. in the middle of a pandemic where we really have the opportunity to try and work collaboratively and get some critical answers which will help um, help us protect both healthcare workers and patients for decades to come so um, thank you very much Kirsty, for your for your work and your time um, today I just want to pip in and say you know it's a great example of MDT working you know working uh, with open minds with people in different spheres who have specific expertise and also having the opportunity to have the empty ward over the two weeks and making the most use of the opportunity really and and the outcome from it so I've, I've really enjoyed it Kirsty. thank you thanks Martin. thanks for it. thanks for your interest um and yeah it, and and uh, just acknowledging of course that it's not me it's the whole team i just i just um listen to what they tell me and try to see um how we can we can help make it happen but yeah it's been fun actually and that's the other thing to say isn't it with these multidisciplinary yeah. things you 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 kind of learn how to think outside your usual box don't you i think one thing over the last 12 months anyone working in this area regardless of their discipline would say it's been one heck of a challenge but um but we have seen some and been able to to test and look at some really different things that um, we haven't been able to before so every challenge comes with an opportunity Uh, and on that note thank you Kirsty and your colleagues Uh, thank you Martin and thank you to everyone else for uh, joining us for this podcast it's goodbye for now